Good morning. I'm from Rome, Georgia. I was born and raised here. And what I taught for a long time at Shorter University, and what I taught here in this school for a long time, taught Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, and an apologetics course. In that apologetics course, we dealt with what a worldview is. A few weeks ago, I introduced you to eight key questions that help you develop a robust, thoroughly Christian worldview. One of the things I learned about growing up in Roman Floyd County in the church culture is that it is easy to create God in your own image. And it's easy to receive knowledge from the air and colloquialisms and ideas that are just passed around that are innately Christian because they came from somebody and they came from the church. And so we just assimilate them into our thoughts and ideas and they become truths to us. And then what we begin to do is we hear those and we take them back to the Bible and begin to shape the Bible's words into the image of that idea. This is what happened in the Old Testament to the saints in the Old Testament. It's called syncretism. They begin to sync the ideas of their culture in with what God said and created a whole new thing. That's Roman Floyd County. And so what you'll find is as you read your Bible, particularly the first time through, and then the second time is harder because you will see things that you didn't see the first time, and you'll notice that they conflict with what you have believed. And you do one of two things at that point. You either begin to change what you believe or you begin to make the Bible say what you want it to say and you talk yourself into it. It's a dangerous thing. The gospel is one of those things that if we are not careful, we can make the gospel whatever we want it to be. And as long as we say the right words the magic words of the culture we get to pass through. This morning, what I want us to do in asking and answering the question, what is the gospel? I, I want you, I want you to tune in because this key, this key to everything, in 1 Timothy 4, 16, is that we've got to pay close attention to our life and our teaching. Because in doing this, we save ourselves and our hearers. Paul told his young protege those words explicitly. We have to pay close attention to our life and our teaching. We can't fail to pass on sound Bible teaching and sound faithful obedience to future generations. There's no such thing as a sound life without sound teaching. And there is emptiness in teaching that is not accompanied by obeying sound teaching in practice rather than just loud words with no action. It's funny how we can get captivated by peripheral issues but ignore the fact that God says in Deuteronomy, if you don't take care of the orphan, I'm going to kill you and your family. Pure and undefiled religions care for the orphan, the widow, and visit them in their affliction. Explicit. And yet come up with every excuse in the book not to do it. And at the same time argue about things for tears down the line of any manner of importance. We must believe and obey. He who hears these words of mine and does them is the wise person who builds their house on rock. There is no unshakable house without teaching and living. And the whole point of this 
course of sermons is to get us to ask and answer these key questions and then begin to act upon them. In fact, that'll be the last application to be today. Just give you a heads up, act on it. Act on it. So today's question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The word gospel is a couple of steps down the line translation of the Greek word euangelion. So gospel is a couple of steps down the line in translation of the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion means, first line, good news. The word gospel is not a literal translation of euangelion. Gospel is from the Anglo-Saxon term godspell, meaning good story, which comes from the Latin word evangelium, which comes from the Greek word euangelion, thus a couple of steps down the line of the actual word in the text of Scripture. We're all used to the word gospel, and I chose to use that word in our question because it's one we're all very familiar with, and it's a good word. It's a fine word. However, good news is the better way to translate euangelion from the text, and I'll use good news predominantly from here on out unless the context of what I'm talking about is better to say gospel, just so you know as you go through. Um, and you see these notes, you know they're available to you at theologyandirt.com. Good news is used 97 times in 91 verses in the New Testament. And it's so all-encompassing that we can't do all of it justice today in one little long sermon. The basic understanding is that the message being preached is exceptional news that needs to be passionately told. The Old Testament version of good news is a word, Bashar. And a good example is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 and 9. And I almost preached that as our central passage today. And I'll leave you to go look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 and 9. And it means a message that carries tidings, carries news. Now here's a little factoid for you. And I want to spend a couple of minutes here because this is related to what I said to you at the very, very beginning. Early on in my master's level education... Before we hit the gospel marketing boom, and yes, there has been a boom in selling things by attaching the word gospel to it, and that's not all positive, just know that. Usually where money is involved, it finds something dirty down the line. Had a professor that I greatly admired, and he's gone on to be with the Lord. I used his commentary on 1 John before I had a chance even meet him in person. He was older when I had the privilege of having him for Greek exegesis. He asked us this question, what is the good news? What is the good news? What is the message the apostles proclaimed that they passed on so the disciples knew what to say? Because the apostles preached this message, and we read in Acts chapter 8 that after Stephen was killed, the church was persecuted, and they were scattered, and all the disciples went, and everywhere they went, they all preached this message. What is this message? That is incredible news that everybody proclaimed passionately. What is this message that's so powerful that it transforms people? I'm so grateful Dr. Vaughn asked that question to this Greek class. We were in the weeds of translating 
and wrestling with our own English grammar, much less the grammar of a dead language. But Dr. Vaughn didn't want us to miss this. He didn't want us to miss asking the question because the Bible captures this message they proclaimed. It captures it. The whole Bible captures it. Not one verse, not simply one book. The whole Bible captures it. And Dr. Vaughn did not want us to miss it. He asked us a question that day that I asked some guys upstairs on first Sunday. How many times you read your Bible through, actually? Because if you don't, you're going to miss the gospel. The gospel is not one verse. It is the whole narrative of the whole Bible. The whole thing is the good news. And the good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1.16. And so what is this message that defies one verse, but it's the story of the whole? He did not want us to miss it. See, the Bible in its parts and in the sermons and prayers captured and conversations had with the apostles and other disciples capture components of this whole message and what we're missing in the Bible text, not because the Bible's incomplete, but because God is capturing for us as we studied all the way back at the beginning, what is the Bible? He's capturing for us His work in time and history through the scribes. He's chosen to write down what He wants us to have, components of this gospel message. And He believes that his people is reading the whole thing. He's assuming, and he's God, he gets to assume. We don't get to assume. He's God, he gets to assume. He's given us his word. He's assuming we're reading it. And so therefore, it's not just in one verse. He's given us a whole Bible to shape our whole worldview and this whole story, this whole meta narrative is the good news. And Vaughn wanted us to not miss it as we were in the weeds of translating singular words. Y'all, as he asked that question, the stammering and stumbling in that classroom over answering that question was palpable. There were young men who admitted they've never actually read their Bible through, but they're at a master's level school claiming to be prepared to go teach other people the Bible. They're in our churches. Never read it through, but they're preaching to you. Not here. <laughs> Uh I doubted at that moment with Dr. Vaughn if I could answer the question apart from my canned evangelistic presentations. I had read the Bible through multiple times at that point. But what I had done was I had a bunch of canned gospel presentations that I love to share the gospel with people. I believe it's a command on God's given every Christian. It's your job to preach the gospel. All your jobs to preach. Yes, preach, preach, passionately proclaim the good news of the gospel, not just elders' jobs. But what I realized in that moment is my little canned 30-second presentations, I don't think they did justice to the whole story of the Bible, and, and rightly so, I had appropriate chills of fear and trembling down my spine because I don't think I had done the good news justice. I knew and believe, Romans 1.16, that the gospel, this good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This question for me and all of us in the classroom struck us hard. 
Some people dropped out of that class. They dropped Greek and went on to easier degree tracks. Uh, God bless them. And up to that point, up to that point, no one, and I mean no one, ever asked me what the good news was as presented in the whole Bible. Nobody ever asked me that question up to that point. No one never asked me what is the good news as presented in the whole Bible. It took me moving to Fort Worth, Texas and enrolling in a master's level program to have an old PhD. And by the way, Dr. Vaughn pastored a little tiny church out in the suburbs of Fort Worth while he taught and passed on this glorious wisdom. I have great respect for Dr. Curtis Vaughn. If you can find a commentary, they're out of print. Buy it. It will bless you on 1 John. Nobody ever asked me that question and forced me to answer it. So I began to question my evangelistic presentations and whether or not they did the good news justice and if what I was sharing would do what Romans 1.16 said it would do because I wasn't sharing the whole story. I remembered my salvation at the age of 20 and the message that was preached that evening on Jekyll Island, Georgia when I had other intentions and I sat under the preaching of this gospel that I'm going to share with you this morning and I was transformed. I went from death to life in a snap of a finger. I don't know what happened to me other than I met Jesus. I wasn't looking for Jesus. I didn't want Jesus, but Jesus wanted me and he confronted me with this good news and took me from death to life and changed everything about me in an instant. Doesn't mean he's going to do it exactly like that in you, but that's what he did in me. I remembered that message, and I remembered what was in that message. It was the story of the whole Bible, yet I had received the transforming work of the gospel and moved on from it, and I didn't integrate it into my practice of teaching and living. And by the way, evangelism is the work of sharing the euangelion. That's where we get the word from. That's why we call it evangelism. It's preaching the good news. Christian subculture for me had drowned out the meta-narrative of the gospel for a quick hit, get saved presentation that didn't tell the whole story. Here's a little note for you. God still does good even when we don't do good. God doesn't need us to be perfect. That's not an excuse for an anemic work. It's not an excuse for being lazy. But God doesn't need me to be on, and he doesn't need my sharing of the gospel to be perfect. Too much is at stake, and we're tasked with watching our life and our teaching closely because it matters that we get this correct, and it needs to be biblical and robust because God's given it to us in his word. And if his word is a lamp for our feet and light for our path, and we're to hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against the Lord, then we probably ought to do this good news justice. As I studied my Bible and read it through repeatedly, I noticed the parts of the good news as presented in the whole Bible were just ignored in an awful lot of my good news presentations. So many evangelistic strategies and discipleship efforts take basic good news understanding for granted or assume some level of agreement with our list of presuppositions. And can I just say this to you? Nobody in the public square of Roman Floyd County shares any presupposition you have about God, mankind, 
creation, Bible, they're absent in their presence, in their soul. They don't share any presupposition. Can I just say to you, even with those who call themselves Christians, you're starting from scratch. Because I was 20 and knew nothing. I knew moralistic therapeutic deism titled Christianity. That's where we live. That's what we're dealing with. The more time I spent in the public square and among those who weren't Christians and even in Christian subculture, the more I realized that we can't assume anything in the public square and basic knowledge of the Bible, and we can't assume a Christian worldview is in place even among those who call themselves Christian. So what I want to do this morning is, as you've heard, if you've been at Three Rivers long enough, you've heard this. This won't be new to you. So I want to say it again by way of repetition so that we don't miss the answer to the question, what is the gospel? I want to lay out the meta narrative of the whole Bible that the Bible calls the good news. Now we're going to read Romans 3, 21 to 26, and it's going to come into play at the third part of this gospel presentation. And we'll unpack it in that third part. But we're going to read Romans 3, 21 to 26 together. So if you would stand... And we are going to read together. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate Demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mark, thank you. Glory. That infernal beeping is off. Glory. What is the good news? I've got a little statement for you here that's going to help us encapsulate it that we're going to unpack. Because what I want you to do with this is I want you to have it seared in your memory. I want you to memorize it. I want you to know it because it will help you. It will help you assimilate these eight questions of a Christian worldview. It will help you see the interconnectedness of them. It will force you back to the biblical text and ask the question, what does the Bible actually say? So that you're confronted with the air and the thoughts of the air and the thoughts of the world and the thoughts of Christian subculture by the Word of God so that the Word of God can work its transformation in your soul and in your body. The good news of the kingdom is the entire story or the meta narrative of the entire Bible with Jesus, the eternal Son of God, as the centerpiece of that meta narrative in his identity. Coming on mission from the Father, living, dying, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the Father to restore and redeem all of his creation and all of his people who will repent and believe in him to then be continually transformed and one day to reign forever together in a renewed creation in Eden regained when the Lord returns upon our preaching this good news to every nation on earth. That's one sentence. <laughs> Sorry. It's on the blog. You don't have to write it down. It's there for you to see. 
Here is our four-word summary of that good news that will help you tell this entire story of the entire Bible that promises to be God's power for salvation to anyone who will believe. You believe that? This story that the Bible calls the good news promises it is God's power for salvation to everyone who will believe, meaning you don't need to embellish it. You don't need to make anything up. You don't need to yell. You don't just need to speak softly. You don't have to do anything that's fake. All you have to do is tell this good news. And God promises that he will yank people from death to life. He promises that he will cause new creation to break forth in people and in the earth. You believe that? I don't know if you believe that. I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't know if we as a Christian subculture actually believe that. This message is so supernaturally powerful that all we have to do is tell it, and Jesus will pull off everything we can. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Number one, creation. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us from the first sentence that creation has a beginning. And it was made by the God who is the subject of the Bible. You and I are not the subject of the Bible. We're not in it, so don't read yourself into it. The Bible is all about the God of the Bible of which the content is about. We can say it like this. God, the triune God of the Bible, is the God, and He alone created all things and all beings from nothing, and He alone is to be worshipped. God created all things very good, we read. We learn that sin and evil are not the product of His creating work. God is distinct from His creation, and as a result, only God is to be worshipped. God created the spiritual world, and it's real, and it is subject to Him. God created mankind in His image, male and female, and love and joy. Mankind has a worldwide vocational purpose in managing all things as God's co-regents on the earth. God did all of this for His glory and praise and for us to enjoy for His glory. Creation. Fall. Genesis 2, 16 to 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Something has already taken place in the heavenly and unseen realm of the hosts of heaven, and good and evil are now distinct realities. I can't hear that sentence and not hear in Magician's Nephew the animals. Who's read Magician's Nephew? All right, there's a few of you, you know what I'm saying? And they're like, as I'm told them, there's an evil already in Narnia. And they're like, an evil? What's an evil? And they're like, no, he didn't say an evil. He said an evil. And it's like, no, an evil. And this is all the animals are talking about what an evil is. It, this, yeah, sorry. Couldn't help it. It's in my head forever. Lewis reigns between my ears. 
hope he doesn't reign over Jesus, but you get the point. I heard somebody say, wow, that's you, Adam? You're dogging me over here. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Sorry. But there is already an evil that has done some damage in creation and among people. And God gives them one rule, don't eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil because when you do, you're going to join on another team. It's going to be really bad. One rule. And that rule is don't seek to be part of this rebellion by following in the footsteps of that rebellion and stepping out of the boundaries that God has established. The serpent, one of these heavenly hosts, a creature, being an originator in the rebellion, deceives this new couple in their garden home, and they follow the deception, and the virus of death begins to creep into all of creation. We read Genesis 3, verse 8 to 10, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. They hid from him. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That is sad and funny at the same time. They knew him face to face, and now they're hiding from him, thinking they actually can. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? It's not because the Lord doesn't know. It's because the Lord intends for us to respond to him. Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve have now joined in the rebellion against the triune God of the Bible. Relational bonds of every kind are now afraid, and death is spreading like a cancer into every relational fiber in creation. God to man, man to himself, man to man, man to creature, and man to physical creation. The day you eat of it, you will die. All of those bonds are now frayed and broken. Death as the curse has set in as mankind and creation crumble relationally at every level and it will spread to all of mankind from that point forward. That's really bad news. That's devastating news. Redemption. But the triune God of the Bible, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God of the Bible, sets the pattern for what he's going to do to rescue people and all of creation by redeeming people and all of creation from the curse of sin. He sets that pattern. So what is that pattern? What does he do? Adam and Eve, immediately upon sin, feel this new emotive and physical unpleasant sensation of shame as they now look in broken ways at how God had created them and they hide themselves because they are now under the condemnation of God because of sin. But God takes it upon himself to have innocence, and this is the pattern, to have innocence cover guilt to repair the shame of sin. How does God do that? Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Some creature who didn't do anything wrong, perfectly innocent of this crime, is killed by God. God makes clothing to cover 
their shame. God sets the pattern for what he's going to do, which we read about in Romans 3, 21 to 26. Will it be animals that will ultimately fix this problem? No. God, speaking of how he will do it, speaking to the serpent particularly on how he's going to pull this off, the one who hosted the rebellion and the one who has propagated it, here's what the Lord says to him. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The Lord promises that there will be one who will come from Eve and this one will crush the serpent's head at the cost of his own wounding to reverse the curse of sin and death. We follow this pattern God sets in the progression of God's work for the rest of the Bible. Seth, will he be the one? No. Will Noah be the one? No. Will Abraham be the one? No. Will Isaac be the one? No. Will Jacob be the one? No. Will Saul be the one? No. Surely David, he will be the one. And none of them is the promised one. None of them are able to deal a death blow to this work of sin and death. None of them will be able to crush this work and none of them will be able to atone for sin and none of them can bring about created order restored. Who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the one to fulfill this pattern and crush the rebellion and bring full salvation to man and creation? Who's going to do that? And all the Old Testament is languishing, waiting for this. Who's it going to be? Come to the restoration. Galatians 4, verse 4 to 5, when the time came to completion. God had a set time. God's not playing this by ear. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman. <gasps> Might he be the one? Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the appointed time, at just the right time, the Lord sent his son, the eternal son of God, the creator, who was and is the one promised who would come from Eve to redeem those he placed under the law to show them they could not save themselves and needed God to save them. Galatians 3.24, the law was my teacher, my tutor. This is the NASB. It's how I memorized it the first time. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John go to great pains to tell us that Jesus is this son. He is the one. And Jesus comes, he lives, he shows us God himself. Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is crucified, he's buried, he's raised alive on the third day, and he ascends into heaven at the right hand of the Father. In this work, Jesus reestablished his kingdom on earth, and that kingdom is advancing through his presence on earth in the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who were adopted as children of God through his sacrificial work on the cross in their place for their sin, gathered in local churches. Here's the exposition of Romans 3, 21 to 26 that speaks about this center work of redemption that Jesus pulls off. God has now put on display what his righteousness looks like, and it's not the law. The law was our tutor to lead us to what his righteousness looks like, and that is none other than Jesus. And it is Jesus. 
And the Old Testament was bearing witness to the truth of Jesus the whole time. On every page, it screams his name. And those who have eyes to see can see. Which is why the Lord said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is written in the text. Every page is pointing us either in pattern, in shadow, or outright explicitly to Jesus being the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And the gospel writers, the good news writers are letting us know this. Jesus is that promised one. Why did we need this righteousness that's been revealed? Why did we need it? Because he tells us here that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Because that's what sin did. Sin wrecked all of creation and infected every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve from conception with sin under the condemnation of God. Death and sin spread to all people and all of creation for all time. But now, now, People can be made righteous, justified as a gift by the powerful grace, the powerful gift of God through the redeeming work of Jesus. What is the redeeming work of Jesus? Well, Paul tells us here explicitly, God the Father, listen very carefully, God the Father took Jesus and presented him as the sacrificial offering to satisfy his completely right and justified wrath at and on mankind for mankind's guilt and role in wrecking all things. Some translations say, rightly, it's the Greek word propitiation. The CSB calls it the mercy seat. Jesus takes the wrath of God at sinners in our place. The cross is a display of the just action of God to execute justice on my sin and yours. What I deserve, God the Father executes on his Son in our place for our sin. And it is right for God to do it. He's not wrong to do it. If he doesn't do it, he's unjust. Because of what Adam did, we all get charged with the guilt of it. God said the day they did that, all would die. That's part of the death sentence that Adam chose for you and me. But God takes Jesus' sacrifice and presents his perfection as a payment for your sin and mine. The Father has to do this. This is important. He has to do this. This is not optional. Why? Because he tells us, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did God have to do this? Because God chose to pass over David's sin. Hear what it said? In God's restraint, he passed over the sins previously committed. Follow me here for a second. Everything that happened to David because of what he did were just consequences. It was not judgment. It's just consequences. Because David believed in the Lord and Jesus hadn't yet come, God the Father passed over his sin and did not execute justice on David. So if God lets David go free and Jesus doesn't die, God is unjust and he becomes guilty of sin. 
And because he's not a sinner and he's not unjust, somebody has to pay for David's sin. Who will it be? Jesus. The one that is promised who would crush the head of the serpent, but he would have to die to do it. And so Jesus comes and he takes on flesh and he lives a perfect sinless life and he shows us the Father. He fulfills the law and he goes to a Roman cross at the hands of God the Father, not Rome. Jesus told Pilate, you have no authority that my Father did not give you. So whatever Pilate said, he said under the authority of God the Father. And God the Father put Jesus on the cross and he executed justice on Jesus so he could pardon David for his faith if you don't believe that you don't believe the gospel this good news and substitute yourself for David everything you've ever done everything you're doing and everything you will do if you come to him by faith it gets executed on Jesus for you which is why people who believe the gospel and are transformed by it don't keep sinning as Romans 6 says because we can't When you're faced with that, you look at your sin and go, how stupid was I? I don't want any of that. That's crazy. Wow. God graciously passed over the sin of the people who loved the Lord until Jesus would come and take the penalty for the sin of the world. And in so doing, God is just because he punished sin. That's why it had to be Jesus. No animal, no human being could pay that penalty. Only God himself could pay it. And Jesus, the eternal creator, son of God, pays that penalty for us. And God then is just. But he is also the one who justifies those who trust in Jesus, which is why it costs you nothing. All you got to do is believe. But what this powerful message does is changes the heart so that it can believe. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10 tells us, this is not your work, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so no one can boast. And by the grace of God, he gives you this beautiful gift of supernatural saving faith so that you can trust in Jesus. And when you exercise that gift and believe in Jesus, all of your sin, past, present, future is gone, executed on the cross for you. Isn't that awesome? That's the good news that makes that bad news sparkle and shine. But what's next? That's not the end of the story. There's the restoration. The restoration. What is the restoration? The restoration is what is commonly referred to as sanctification and heaven in most Christian circles. Sanctification and heaven. In the restoration... God saves people from himself. you got to understand this. This is huge. And the good news, God's not just saving people from some eternal place out there that they just go. I want you to hear this very carefully. And I, I invite you to read your Bible. I invite you to sound this out. And if I'm lying, rebuke me. Hell was created by God as a place for the hosts in the rebellion and he will sentence to that place he created that he sovereignly oversees all who will not believe 
Hell is not a place absent from the omnipresent God. It's a place where God punishes justly those forever who will not come to Him in faith. That's really bad news, but this good news of the redeeming work of the cross is incredible, which is why we beg people, come to Jesus and be saved. Just believe. All you got to do is believe. Believe in Him, and it's a gift to you. So, this restoration is that God saves people from himself through faith in Jesus, and he transforms us into new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. This promise in Isaiah is fulfilled partly in us so that when we believe, we get a new heart, we get the Holy Spirit, and he begins to create in us a whole new restored person. And sanctification is the working out of new creation every day of life. You ever notice the progression? This is why I tell you to journal. It's beautiful to look back over the years. You flip through the pages and see those little victories that wasn't won because you gritted your teeth and went, but just in the disciplines of prayer and reading your Bible and fellowship, you gained a taste for holiness and a distaste for sin, and it just went away. (laughs) That's called new creation breaking in. It's new creation taking hold. Oh, and as we begin to see new creation taking hold, us evangelicals need to wrap our hearts and minds around the reality that Jesus taught us to heal and then say to them, the kingdom of God has come near, that as we begin to work this good news into the fabric of systems, because the Bible tells us that the kings of the earth and the nations are going to come into that new Jerusalem and bring Jesus the gifts of creation that belong to him anyway and we're going to be with him forever in a brand new renewed sin taken away creation Eden regained and we're going to be functioning in that we're going to be flying around with wings singing songs playing harps all day we're going to be working tilling the earth managing systems with no sin and bringing all the fruit of that to Jesus and there will be life coming from the throne of God and the trees will be in bloom all year round and there will be constant fruit and production we'll eat from it enjoy it and bring it to Jesus and say here's your part and he will take delight in us and us in him with no sin dad gum that's good that is heaven that's heaven sanctification in heaven is restoration it's that work in the restoration God begins the transformation of created order in the sanctification of his church until he returns to personally finish the work of restoration in the final judgment in the reward of his saints, and personally ushering in the renewed created order called the new heaven and the new earth that has zero stain of sin in it. Here's how I'm going to end before, I promised applications, three tiny little points. Promise, promise, we're almost done. But I have to read this for you. If I don't read this, Jesus is going to get me. So I have to read this for you. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 through chapter 21 verse 4 kind of captures it in a beautiful way and I just want to plant it in your soul and let the Holy Spirit do with it as he wills I try to do it without crying then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it I wonder who that is earth and heaven fled from his presence no place was found for them 
I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. I want to comment, but I'm not. Just let it land. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I do have to comment here. I can't help it. Bible teacher has to do it. He's not saying in the new creation, in its cosmology, there's no water. Everybody can read Revelation. In the water, in the apocalypse, bad stuff comes out of the water. Dragon, serpents, bad stuff, storms. His point is the evil's gone. Sin's been cast in the lake of fire. Now peace reigns. Sees no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look! God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Glory to God. Y'all, as best I know how, with my Bible open, that is the good news. That's the whole story, the meta-narrative of the good news that the Bible presents. So what? So what? Number one, believe it. Believe it. I was sitting in Jekyll Island, Georgia, contemplating all manner of sin. That message right there was preached, and it entered my soul and change me and I have no doubt that in this room there are cultural Christians perhaps in our short number this morning we're light in attendance or even by live stream that that message can do for you what it did for me you walked in thinking you were one thing living another way and it wrecked me and took took away death and gave me life and I have no doubt that in this room it can do the same thing and by somebody watching it will do the same thing simply believe it that's all you got to do. Believe. And by the way, when the Bible says repent and believe, when you hear us say repent and believe, those aren't two things. Those are one thing. Repentance involves belief. Belief involves repentance. The Bible always presents them together as one cohesive thing. Don't play them against each other. That's not how the Bible plays that. That sin, that's Christian subculture. Repentance and belief, same thing. Repentance is turning from sin, and you don't turn from sin unless you believe. And when you believe, you turn from sin. Make sense? So just believe, repent and believe. Number two, tell it. Tell it. Tell this story. Don't embellish it. You don't need to be, like, if you need to preach it, then get after it. But sometimes you just need to tell it. Sometimes you need to be quiet. You need to be smart enough to be visionary enough to know where you are and contextually how to function. Right? Don't be a fool. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Tell it. Open your mouths and tell this story. There is no, let me, mm, I'm going to make some people mad. There's no such thing as merely doing the gospel, so stop saying that. Don't be mad at me. I love you, but I want you to be right. 
the good news is a story to be told. Remember, one of the things we've been talking about in creation, God speaks. And when God speaks, he does things. We're made in his image. So he tells us our words carry with it life and death. And so how do we ensure our words carry life? Tell with your mouth this message. And this message gives life because it's not you. You're, we're not God. We're not God. We're humans. And although we are like God, creating his image, we're not God. We made that point last week, remember? Remember? So we don't create nothing with our words. That's a lie. That's from Satan. We don't create Jack with our words. We do speak words of life when we speak the gospel, this good news. So open your mouths and speak it. If we don't tell this message to lost ears, they will not be converted. God has ordained the means of salvation be the preaching of the gospel. Three Rivers Church, hear that. Which is one of the reasons we go where the gospel's never been. It's why we invest lots of money to go to places like the Suru Valley where there are 300 villages and no gospel witness. It's because Jesus said make disciples of the nations. They're not going to believe by people just giving them water. They're going to believe when this message enters their ears and goes down into their heart and converts them. Therefore, we must go. And if it costs us everything in the budget, we must go because it's the mission. Roman Floyd County must hear. They will not hear unless we're sent. Three of us church, you are sent. So go and tell them. If we don't, we're failing at the mission. Which, by the way, this is why we have a lot more empty seats than full seats most weeks at Three Rivers Church. Because <laughs> they're like, I have people tell me all the time, man, you just want me to do too much. I'm like, yeah. You're right. I want you to be an apostle. I want you to be a prophet. I want you to be a pastor, shepherd, teacher, preacher of the gospel. You're a saint, so get after it. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then don't be a Christian, man. Go do something else. (laughs) Budget is going to bottom out, man. Right? That's all right. Preach it. Got to do it. Gotta do it. How do you, what if the whole church was the missionary? See now while we, that question sounds awesome until you hear stuff like this. You're like, oh, that's what he means. Oh, God. Right? Preach this message. Then, then, third and finally, act like it. Act like it. That does carry the action. Watch your life and your teaching closely. For in doing this, you save yourself and your hearers. Meaning, there is a place to actually live out the implications of this message we've got to preach. So say, do the gospel. No, okay, believe the gospel, preach the gospel. But, but then the implications down the line are there are things to do. Because new creation is happening around us. Part of God's redeeming work is to redeem creation. And he does that when we restore the relationship between us and created order and us and other people. That's part of the work of the gospel is the restoration. West to God, God to each other, and us to creation. Because there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a restoration of creation. And right now, sin is broken. The relationship between that poverty exists because man's relationship to creation is broken. And man is dignified when they learn to work in creation and receive the fruit of that labor, which is holy, which is why vocations matter. And sin has broken that. And there's a great book. A dear friend of mine called me this week and said, hey, I'm working this, and I don't know how to do this. And I was like, hey, man, you, if you haven't read When Helping Hurts from these brothers up in Lafayette, Georgia, yes, Lafayette, Georgia, you need to read this book. 
because not all helping helps. Part of the restoration of the relationship between man and creation is doing that right, and that's hard. That's hard work. I'm not going to lie to you. That is very complicated, difficult work. But it's part of taking this good news and working down the line the implications of new creation breaking out in people and in creation. It's hard. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not complex. Can't preach a sermon on it. That's more first Sunday classroom stuff. Just go read the book. These brothers work that out for you. They're Christians. Christian worldview. They're just working out the gospel. So my point, act like it. If the good news redeems creation, let's act like it does. Let's make sure our vocations count. Let's go to work tomorrow. Let's preach this good news, but let's also solve the problems that are in front of us. I'm going to say this one because I got fired up this morning. It's John Luke's fault. He asked, so I answered. The Bible is super clear that it is our job, it is our job to make sure that every child has a forever home. And sometimes that looks like the restoration of biological mom and dad. Sometimes it looks like speeding up adoption. It is our job. God is clear in the Old Testament. If we don't take that justice to heart, he will get us. James 1.27 is clear. This is pure and undefiled worship to do this. Right now, the LGBTQ plus community is outstripping us, and they have a missiological reason for doing it. They're propagating their worldview in the mission work of sharing the bad news of their ideology, and they're doing it in that system. It's not their system, it's yours. And in order for it to be yours, you have to stop some of the junk and go get in line and make sure those babies are in your home, and you teach this good news to them, and then begin to act like it. And every church in Floyd County needs to hear that. And I'm going to just take God, geez, Lou, I'm, I'm mm, like when I get to talk to other pastors about this, they shut me off. They don't want to hear this anymore because they understand the implication on themselves that the people are only going to do what you do. And they don't want to do that. They come all the time down to Restoration Rome and hand in their stuff and say it's hard. I'm like, yeah, it's hard. It's easy to preach on Sundays and have a service and go turn off dinging alarms and have children's ministry. and have That's easy. It's easy to stand here and tell you the gospel. It's hard to work down the line of what it means to see new creation break out in our city. That's half the gospel work. And we have to stop using the excuse, that's not for me, I haven't been called to that. Yes, you have. What part of that Bible verse doesn't count for us? It's like I tell people about the Great Commission. What part of the Great Commission doesn't count for us? Go make disciples of all nations. is isn't to the Special Forces Green Beret Christians. It's to the whole church. The worship of caring for the kids in our county is for the whole church, not just a few Special Forces Christians. Is it hard? You bet. Will it cost you? Yeah. Will you grieve? Mourn and weep? Yep. Tell you about two little fellas, past two Fridays, I've been waiting for their pickup after they get dropped off by their foster parent. Last Friday, this is I promise, this, is, this was not in the notes, this is free. But just an example of, just do, do what you can where you are. These two little fellas sitting there waiting for their meeting with their bio, dropped off by their foster parent, and they're there with their caseworker. And it's, my, it's time to go home, so I'm leaving. 12-year-old, 10-year-old, they're going to be at model. 
They're coming back. They're Floyd County, been out of Floyd County for a while, getting to come back home. This is good. And one of them, somebody made a comment about being 12, because one of them's 12. And I was standing there chatting with the ladies and chatting with these little fellas, and, and I said something about us men never really grow up. We're always 12. And the 12-year-old said, is that bad? I'm like, oh, heck no. It's not bad. It's awesome. You just get better at being 12. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, it's called crop dusting. And he goes, <laughs> Gabby knows. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's when you're at Walmart and you see a group of people and you walk through them and you pass gas really quietly and you move on. And they just died laughing. They're like, oh, that's so funny. And I said, see, see, this is my point. I still think that's funny. I still do it. And they're like, no way. I'm like, yeah, I did it yesterday. And like, this is awesome. And they're like, you can, be, you can still do that. And I said, oh, yeah, you just get better. I said, what you learn is how to hold it, man. Like, like, like don't laugh and don't let anybody know you did it. I said, right now it's going to be really hard because you're going to laugh. And then they said, well, how do you know I'm going to laugh? And I said, poop. And then they both started laughing. Like, see, that's still funny to me. It's funny to you. That's what being 12 means. And they're just laughing. And, and we just had a fun little time. And it hit me as I walked away from they got to laugh for five minutes. They got to laugh at pooping and farting for five minutes and forgot about the tense place they found themselves. That is just a glimmer of new creation breaking in for just a minute. Just a minute. And I could have just walked by and moved on and forgot to comment about being 12, but something said, just laugh with them for a minute. Be present for five minutes. And maybe in five years, they'll remember that stupid 50-year-old man who told me about crop dusting, who also told me about Jesus. It's okay. And if that little moment of new creation breaking in served its purpose, then so be it. So here's, just act like it. Take every moment, every moment to tell the story and work it out somewhere down the line. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we want to make much of you. We do. We desperately want to make much of you. We want to be agents of new creation. We'll be agents of this good news. And it's challenging. I confess that to you, but I also confess to you it is powerful and good, and we love it. Lord, pray for those radical kids workers who are getting tired of me preaching too long. I mean, their rhythm doesn't go past this time. They're working hard. Give them strength right now. Lord, we pray for our, our little fellowship that we would be enamored with this good news, that you would burn it into our souls and it would come out of our mouths. We pray, Father, that you cause it to land on cold, dead hearts and bring them to life. Pray that down the line, you'd produce fruit in our actions, in our city, in our world. We're here for the long haul. We know, it's, we know it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So Lord, we pray that you give us perseverance to stay the course, keep the gospel front and center, this good news. And let it inform every component of our whole lives. Lord, we want to worship you now. We pray, Father, that you would receive what we bring to you in the words we sing, but also in the very lives we lay down and say they're yours. Do with them as you will. So as we lay our lives down, as we sing, we pray to be glorified, be magnified. Salvation spring up from the ground. There be righteousness and truth spring up from the ground. That you would captivate hearts. That you would convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That you would move 
and convict about truth and holiness and righteousness. Kingdom come and your will be done right here as in heaven.